Welcome to the Not A Mommy Yet podcast. I'm your host, Natalie Fay. I started the Not A Mommy Yet blog and this podcast because I've always known I want to be a parent one day, and you might be listening because you feel the same. You may have also heard people with kids say things like, I wish I had known this before I had kids, or I wish I had done that. Hearing those comments made me think about the parts of my life I want to spend more time focusing on before I have kids in ways that will benefit me as a parent. So I started a list of people who can teach me about health, money, relationships, psychology, and more, and started interviewing them, and this podcast was born. Whether you plan to have kids or not, I think you'll find something interesting in this podcast for you. I hope you enjoy, subscribe, and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you so much for listening. Well, thank you so much, Pamela, for being on the Not A Mama Yet podcast. It's such an honor to talk to you today. Um, thank you. Yeah, of course. Um, so I wanted to talk to you because um, I had started reading the Spiritual Midwifery book a while back. My friend who owns a crystal store received it and thought it would be perfect for me and my interests. And um, it was so interesting to read about the caravan and to start reading about some of the birth stories. And then when I, my sister lives in Carthage now, and when I was going to visit her, I realized that the farm was in the same state, not far from Carthage. And um, I just thought it'd be a perfect opportunity to go visit. So um, I, you know, two weeks ago, I got to go see the farm and we saw the midwifery center. No one was there, unfortunately. So we didn't get to go inside. But yeah, that's okay. Um, it was still really cool to see the property and to kind of talk to some people on the property about the farm. Um, so it was really cool to see. So you've been living there for how long? Well, I came with a caravan, so I've been here for uh, almost 49 years now. Oh, wow. Um, That's amazing. And so before the caravan, um, kind of what was your life like leading up to that moment where you kind of met Stephen Gaskin and decided to join the caravan? Well, before I met Stephen and his class uh, at San Francisco State College, I was a student. I was an art student. I'd gone to University of um, Oregon for two years and then transferred to University of Guadalajara in fine arts and art history Mm. for a teacher down there who was very good. Mm. And I came back home and I was finishing up my degree at San Francisco State College when I met Stephen Mm. and his wife and some of the people in his class. And I was impressed because they were talking about things I had thought about. They were talking about telepathy. They were talking about God. Um, They were talking about peace in the world and what can we do about it. They were talking about how can we stop the Vietnam War? How can we stop racism? How can we help the situation? Right. And those are things I all felt passionate about. So I actually started to go to that class when it had eight people in it and it grew and grew and grew until it had 1400 and then several um, ministers invited Stephen on a speaking tour around the country and he is his family bought a school bus to go around the country and go to different colleges and universities and speak and a number of us who were in the class we wanted to go to, and that formed the caravan. 
Oh, great. That's awesome. Um, so how many people were in the caravan at the beginning? Well, when we left San Francisco, October 12th, 1970, uh-huh. we were um, about 250 people in about 75, maybe 80 different buses and vehicles, mostly buses. Some of them were long. They were all school buses uh-huh. that had been, you know, gutted. They'd taken the seats out and and outfitted them like a, an RV, mm-hmm. like they had stoves in them and everything. And, uh, and, um, and we followed him around the country. And um, that nine of us were pregnant when we started out. Wow. And Anime and I were two of those. Uh-huh. And I I just figured my husband would deliver the baby and it would come just out really easily. Mm-hmm. And um, Anime asked me if I'd help her and, and vice versa. I wanted her to help me too. And Joanne, one of our members, who's now a midwife, had had a baby in San Francisco and she had a little manual that we were following. Mm-hmm. So um, we'd pass it back and forth. And then the first baby was born in Northwestern University, and it came out with no problem, and it was a beautiful birth, and she was just lovely. And you could feel magic in the room. You could feel um, just her energy. The energy was just exquisite. Yeah. And one of the things we'd been talking about in... um, in class was energy and how it works and uh, if you be positive around energy and uh, manifest good things then you get good things to happen mm-hmm. and um, so we paid very close attention to the energy and how did it feel right uh, so were there any ever like a birth that started where there like the energy felt off and you kind of the midwives help kind of shift that energy into a more positive space. Well, yes, actually the very next birth, everyone on the caravan heard what a beautiful birth Anna had had and a beautiful little baby. Mm -hmm. And, um, the very next birth, was a mother who had gone into labor a little early. So that was one thing that bothered us. The other thing, when we went over to her bus, uh, it was crowded. Like, many people on the caravan had asked her if they could come to her birth. And being a very young, sweet woman, she said, sure. Uh And then we walked in the bus, and there were men and women, and I don't know if there are any children in there but it was pretty crowded and the first thing that Anime and I did was uh, ask the man to leave except for her except for Kara's husband and um, then we that thinned out the bus some and then we asked a few other people to leave and then it got to where it was um, an area we could easily walk around in right and uh, we helped Kara. We, you know, held her hand. And this, this is in spiritual midwifery, this story. Mm-hmm. And the baby, 
wasn't born too long, you know, the labor wasn't too long. Her husband delivered the baby, and when the baby came out, it didn't breathe. And so somebody had to go over and get Stephen, who knew CPR, and he came over and gave the baby a few breaths, and the baby started up. And that that girl is a good, smart girl today. She's got a PhD. Oh, good. Um, so those are some of your first experiences of midwifery, right? You hadn't really, I mean, besides kind of your story, you know, of your time in Mexico and seeing how births were being handled and kind of your realization of how that's probably what your mom went through um, and you wanting to kind of do it differently. Um, that was your first time on the caravan was seeing actual births and like being part of it right. in that spiritual way. Um, and then how exactly. long, how long after did you give birth on the caravan? Well, we went around the country and we delivered, um, I think two more babies on the way around the country that went quite well. Mm-hmm. And then I gave birth on our way back to Tennessee, um, in 1971 and I, we were in Rock Springs, Wyoming and Christopher was, uh, 40 eight hour labor and he didn't just fall out like I expected right and he was my first baby and um I got very very tired I didn't know you could get that tired Mm. (laughs) and uh, but I kept eating and drinking and you know not very much but little bits and Mm. um he did come out and he was a beautiful baby and um uh Towards the end of the birth, <clears throat> I was <clears throat> kind of whimpering, and I wasn't really trying. You know, when I was uh, pushing him out, I wasn't giving it my all. I thought I was, mm-hmm. but I had more back in there. I had more stores that I didn't know about. And so I was kind of going, uh, uh, uh. And somebody in the back of the bus who was with Ina Mae and, and Margaret, who also helped, and Mary Louise, one of them, said, don't whine, Pamela. And I went, oh, am I doing that? Oh, well, I've got to stop doing that. <laughs> and then the next contraction I had, I pushed with a womanly grunt. Mm-hmm. And uh, the baby started to move down, and he came out in the next few contractions. And just changing that headspace of don't whine, you know, don't feel sorry for yourself. You right. Know, give it, give it your all. Give it, you know, come on like a lion, you know. That's, and um, yeah, that's interesting. I um, well, I I toured a birth center in Nashville as well on that same trip, and they told me that the majority of the births end up going perfectly fine. They stay in the birth center, but any births that end up going to the hospital are usually out of exhaustion for the mother. And so that's interesting that you say that because I wonder, like, when when do you know, like, that there aren't any stores of energy left? Like, when do you know it is time that, like, the mother needs additional assistance? Well, you, today you pretty much have to go with how the mother feels. But I'll tell you from observing my own births and many other births that uh, women have more energy in them than they know. Mm. You have some, some very, and it, it goes in 
into a spiritual realm. I mean, if you're whining and complaining and going, I can't do this, I can't do this. And you know the hospital's around the corner and they have an epidural there and they'll deliver the baby. If you know that, um, you might decide to give up. This is, this is too hard. But on the caravan, we didn't have that. We didn't, there was no way we were going to go to a hospital. Right. We didn't have the money. We didn't, you know, the hospital was as foreign as, I don't know, something foreign. (laughs) (laughs) We were not going to the hospital. And, um, so when somebody said, don't whine, I realized, oh, I've got to do something different here. Mm -hmm. And that's when I, you know, I got some good contractions and I really gave it my total attention. And it was a spiritual place. It wasn't just a physical place. It was, um, it was like something outside of me that was also part of me gave me an extra boost of energy right there. Mm -hmm. And as soon as I quit going, oh, quit whining, I could use that energy. It was there all along. I just hadn't accessed it. And sometimes with a first mother, she doesn't know how to access that extra energy. Right. And she needs somebody to help her with that. And um, once she can access that energy and override um, anything uh, like blocking her like she's exhausted or anything if she can override that she can push the baby out and I've seen that so many times Mm -hmm. I've seen really dedicated mothers who want to have a you know a normal birth everything's good the heartbeat's good she's doing well no high blood pressure everything's perfect there's no reason that woman can't find that energy. She might need a little bit of something to eat, like usually something real light, like a popsicle with a little sugar in it. Mm-hmm. Sugar's energy. So a lot of times when it gets to that place for a woman, we'll give her a little bit of real light um, sugar watery, like a popsicle, a little coconut water, something with electrolytes and, and sugar in it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be a whole lot, but just a little bit, and that will help her brain and it will help her body. Right. No, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But her attitude is everything, and right. the attitude of the women around her. If the women around her don't think she can do it or think she's just too tired out, or maybe she has a mother there or a sister there and says, oh, she's just exhausted, she can't do it anymore, then it's going to be a little harder. Right. And... um so it's really important for the midwife to do two things there. Check everything out, make sure the baby's in a good position, make sure there's um, a good heartbeat, make sure everything's okay with the baby and mother. And then give the mother a little energy drink or something and have her push past that and not complain, That not whine. That helps. And you might have to send somebody in the room who doesn't have confidence in this woman out of the room. Yeah. And we've done that. We've asked fathers to, would you please go boil some water? We need some water. Yeah. Or we've asked somebody to go down to the corner store to, uh, you know, to get something we absolutely need. Right. 
just get them out. Um, because you need, the midwives and the people in the room need to be positive. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things we notice with our Amish birth. I worked in the Amish for about 25 years. Uh-huh. And um, they don't complain. For the most part, those women don't complain. They're stoic. And they have mothers and grandmothers at their birth who say, you're doing fine. You can do it. You can do this. Right. That makes and such a difference. They do it. They have statistics much like ours. It's wow. not better. So as a midwife going into your birth, did those teachings and understandings of the way birth works, were those on your mind? Or like once you're in labor, you're kind of in a totally different headspace? What, with my first baby? Yeah. No, I, we still didn't know very much. Oh, okay. I mean... You were still learning? We were really newbies. We were, you so, know... Were you and Ina May learning? <laughs> we had just started calling ourselves midwives. And uh, we had a, a manual and an obstetrics book that a doctor had given us in Rhode Island. And we passed those books back and forth. And we were learning. We were soaking things up like, mm-hmm. uh, like sponges. But we were, I mean, we'd only, by the time I had my baby, we'd only delivered seven other babies, I think. Oh, wow. Okay, my yeah. baby so might have been were... the seventh. So were you and Ina May um, and the other midwives all kind of learning together at the same time? Yes. Okay. Myself, Ina May, Margaret Nossiger, and, um, who is a friend of ours, and a woman named Mary Louise Perkins. Okay. And they, we were all kind of working together on a caravan. And Mary Louise had um, uh, a boy of her own, so she took care of him and... Um, yeah, we were working together and learning together. And we right. were learning with the women who we were helping. I mean, uh, the women who we were helping knew a lot. Right. Um, and then you guys did get some kind of educational guidance from different doctors, but you mentioned Dr. Williams a lot. Um, what was that like? Because, you, you know, you said the hospital is so foreign to you but it was still helpful to have this doctor come and kind of teach you certain basics or certain more specialized, like, tactics. So how was that? How did that relationship start and evolve? Well, it started when we were going through uh, Rhode Island on the caravan in early 1971 when a doctor named Dr. Louis LaPere came to our bus and said he'd heard about us in the news and heard that we deliver babies and he wanted to give us uh, a few birth, you know, delivery tips. Mm-hmm. And so he sat down with us and for about three hours and told us about what to do if the cord was around the neck, what to do if there was bleeding, and and gave us some instruments and some of the tools we'd need and gave us an obstetrics book. That was our first um, meeting with a doctor, and he we won't forget him. Right. Um, he was an amazing doctor. He was just a country doctor in Rhode Island. Then when we came back here to Tennessee, we met Dr. Williams, who was a country doctor who worked in a small town near to where our farm was. Mm -hmm. And he had been delivering Amish babies. He was also the director of the nearby hospital, which at the time was a small county hospital. Now it's a big area medical center. Um, But he was the medical director, and he took us under his wing and came out here uh, 
once a week, eventually not as soon as we got here, but about, I guess, a year or so after we got here. And um, we met him right away, though, when we took the baby uh, into him. We had a woman who had a premature baby, and we took that baby into him to, uh, you know, it needed some hospital care. Mm-hmm. Um, and he just liked us, and we liked him, and he was uh, a good country doctor. Mm-hmm. And... Um, when he came out here, when he started to come out here one afternoon a week, he'd see anybody who was sick or ailing, and he also checked any pregnant women that we had questions about. And I think there's a picture in Spiritual Midwifery of him checking a woman, and she has a breech baby, and you can see him reaching up on the top of her belly and palpating the head of that baby. Oh, wow. Um, so I think that's in Spiritual Midwifery. Um, so he was really helpful. And so how was very he? Very helpful. He let us, he told us to call him anytime, day or night. Nice. And uh, we did that. I called him one night at about three o'clock in the morning and he came out with the full nursing crew and, <laughs> and uh, helped us with a stubborn cervix that had uh, gotten swollen. And that was the first time I'd seen this. This was in 1971. So how was, I mean, I know he was very supportive of you guys, but how was midwifery viewed in the 70s? Like, uh, maybe across the U.S. Since you, drove, since you were part of the caravan and kind of saw all different parts of the United States. But how did you feel people felt about midwifery? Like, obviously, besides the people you were working with and the, and the women on the caravan. Well, in the caravan, uh, we've had no problems. Nobody challenged us. And right. um, we had good births. Mm-hmm. Um, when we got in Tennessee, we continued to deliver babies and we were having good statistics. Uh, when we had the first, like I say, premature baby, we took that baby into the hospital in Tennessee and Dr. Williams helped us with that. And, um, midwifery in Tennessee was, I mean, Tennessee had had midwives for many, 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 many years. Um probably a couple hundreds. Tennessee is mostly country. I mean, there's three, four big city centers, and Chattanooga is not that big. And the rest of the state is country, and it's small churches, Amish and Mennonite people. And all those churches and um, Mennonite communities and Amish communities have somebody who works as a midwife, and they make friends with their local doctor who helped them. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a good relationship between midwives and doctors in Tennessee for a long time. Uh, in California, uh, it was midwifery was, I mean, women were starting to say, hey, in, back in the 70s, I'm talking about, we want to have home births. We want to have our babies. We want to be in charge of our birth mm-hmm. and the sacrament. And we were recognizing this as a spiritual event, and so were other women. I mean, it was pretty obvious. And so the Santa Cruz Midwifery Center started up, or Santa Cruz Birth Center. And then in Chicago, there was a Women's Maternity Center, I think. Uh, You look up for the name of that, but it was a center that had been going for a while and had been working with doctors. Mm -hmm. And um, then the Washington 
midwifery school was women up there were having home births and working with doctors. So women all over the country, not just us on the caravan, but women all over the country, little little pockets, Santa Cruz, Washington State, Chicago, and I think up in D.C., there were little groups of women who were saying, hey, we want to do our births at home. There's no reason why we can't do this. We're healthy. We're well-fed. And we feel that birthing is a spiritual event, and it's uh, sacred to the family who's having the baby. And there's no reason why we can't have our babies at home. Right. And so that it was just starting up then. Midwifery had pretty much been wiped out all over the country except for a few midwives in the Deep South, which were the old black midwives. Right. And they were carrying the torch right. at that time. But <clears throat> they were a small group, and, you know, they could do a lot for their community, but um, beyond that, they couldn't. Right. So it was really not a widely known practice at that point, like, anymore. Um, no, so, it had pretty much been wiped out. Wow. My mother thought that she had to have her babies in the hospital. Yeah. And I thought at the time, back in the uh, late 40s and 50s when she had her babies, I thought, why can't women have their babies at home? I think I maybe even asked her. Yeah. And, um, yeah. And why can't people nurse their babies? You know, I saw my mother struggle with uh, heating bottles up and, you know, staying, you know, getting up on a hot summer day and having to sterilize bottles. I thought, why? Well, again, the doctors had told her that she just didn't have the equipment to nurse the baby. Well, that was a lot of fault. They were all. She was just fine. Yeah. But back in the 40s and 50s, the doctors were discouraging breastfeeding. Why? I don't know why. That's so interesting. I know what they were doing, but um, they had more colicky babies back then. Right. Because breast milk is, doesn't, doesn't usually make a baby colicky. They can be colicky, but... Yeah, I was pretty colicky um, as a baby. I wasn't breastfed. My mom had a hard time breastfeeding. So, um, uh-huh. so I was going to ask you, what what would you say... Um, I mean, now, of course, I've like midwifery, I think, is starting to grow more and more. Um, You're starting to see birth centers pop up. You're also seeing birth centers close because there aren't enough clients coming in. So um, what would you say um, are some of like the bigger challenges of being a midwife? And bigger challenges of being a midwife? Yeah. Is that what you said? Yeah. And and kind of breaking those misconceptions or like preconceived notions of what a midwife does and their part um, of their, their role, I guess, in pregnancy and birth. And are you talking about home birth midwives or a hospital midwife? Um, I guess both, like whatever you think. Okay, well, there's two different things. There's a home birth midwife with a certified professional midwifery uh-huh. uh, midwife. And we have, over the last 20 years, developed a certification in this country for certified professional midwives or home birth midwives. And for many years, there was no certification. And um, so we needed a certification. Mm -hmm. There needs to be a standard. 
Right. Um, so, uh, and then there's certified nurse midwives. Certified nurse midwives usually work in hospitals. In fact, it's more difficult for them to work out in the field. Serve uh, in the home arena. Mm-hmm. Uh, certified professional midwives are home birth midwives. And we can deliver babies in the home and in birth centers, but we can't deliver babies in the hospital. That's okay with us. The challenges are slightly different because one of the big challenges if you're going to be a midwife is who's going to take care of your, your children and your family. Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, um, hospital-based midwives, if they're actually, after all that education, able to deliver babies in a hospital, will be on a schedule. They'll go in at 8 in the morning and come home at six at night or, you know, something like that, and they'll get regular sleep. Home birth midwives will, we're on call for the women, and we do what we call continuity of care. When we have a woman who's, who we're taking care of, we do all her prenatal, we do the labor and delivery, and we do the postnatal care. Now, we have help with that. We do here. We never, here at this center, we do not go to a birth without at least one or two other midwives or assistants. Mm-hmm. And that assistant will know NRP, neonatal resuscitation, and know how to start an IV. She'll, she may be a nurse, but she's a midwife assistant. Okay. And we'll go with, like I said, another midwife. So, but if I'm taking care of a woman and the woman calls, I have to stop whatever I'm doing. A phone call like this. Right. Taking care of taking care of my children. Whatever I'm doing in the middle of the night, in the middle of the day. And go to that woman who needs help because that's life and death for her. That's a you know, yeah. a serious uh, event. It's also a very spiritual event. And it has to it has to overshadow anything else that you're doing in your life right then. And so to be able to do that, you really need someone who can just step right in and help. Now, that can be your husband, it can be your sister, it can be your mother, or it could be somebody who lives in your house who likes what you're doing, believes in midwifery, mm-hmm. and has dedicated is dedicated in helping you and... Uh, the other woman. Now, we when we lived here, we had we lived in big, house, large households, and there were each midwife had two or three helpers who lived in the household who would pick, you know, pick up what they were doing in the kitchen with their children, anything like that. If you're living out in the world, you have to think who is going to, you know, who can you take your kids to? Who can pick up your kids from school? You have to have that all figured out. And the women who work with us, our assistants who are learning to be midwives, have that figured out. And we talk about that right at the beginning when they start working with us. How are you going to do this? Right. So can you have more than one um, client, I guess? Or, or what's the correct term that you call the pregnant women that client, you work with? Client, Yeah, so yes, can we, you have more than one can. client we at have, a time? Yes, we have... Uh, 
five midwives on our crew. And um, so we back each other up. So um, we each, when when we're all working full steam ahead, mm-hmm. we might take three or four, each of us might take three, uh, three or four, usually more like two or three clients a month. That's plenty. Yeah. That keeps us quite busy. Right. And, um, and then we work in the Amish too. So we're doing that practice and, um, that, you know, our families, our families know we might disappear at the drop of a hat. Right. Um, being a midwife, being a certified professional midwife or a home birth midwife is a, a lifestyle. It's not a job that we go into that we know we're going to go to work at eight and come home at five. Right. It's not like that. It's part of our lives. And part of the pluses in that is there's big stretches of time where you're not doing, you don't have, like nobody calls you, all you, you have to be on call, you have to carry your phone with you. Um, you know, you have to be in touch with the other midwives. You know, we talked every day. And, but uh, also, if you want to go on a vacation, you could uh, figure, well, I don't have any babies for three weeks, three or four weeks, and tell the other midwives that you're going to be gone for a couple weeks. Right. And so there's, that's a nice thing about working with partners. But if you're out there on your own, um, might be, you know, how are you gonna how are you gonna manage that? Yeah, it seems and pretty impossible. We're classes. We teach workshops here and, and we do have a college here. When we teach classes, we teach women we talk to them about that and make sure they know if they're you know, twenty five years old and they have a, a baby on the way and they wanna be a midwife, we tell them go ahead and get your schooling, get your the education you want, get your doula Go to some births, but number one, work with a partner, one or two partners. Number two, remember that you're raising your family. It's really important to raise your family. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, you can't ignore that. And your family, you know, the children will grow up and you'll eventually have more time to put into midwifery. But um, you, have to, you have to, you know, have that time children yeah definitely I think unless you have the help that we had I mean we had help I always I took care of my children I was with my children a lot but also had women that would just pick up and get them ready for school or cook for them right and that was the benefit of living on the on the farm right and then my husband was here as well right right and he had he had an on the farm job and so he could pick up and take care of the kids too in fact he would get up in the middle of the night with me and fix me tea and a sandwich and load my car while I was getting ready to go for a birth oh nice (laughs) yes so being a midwife being a home birth midwife is a way of life right it's a lifestyle it's not just a job yeah definitely um and it's a very spiritual lifestyle I mean you have to save your time to meditate and pray. Right. 
Yeah, especially when you're going into a birth, like you just want to be in the right headspace. Um, right. What is your kind of personal ritual going into a labor? I mean, I'm sure you, you've done so many at this point. You can probably know what to expect and everything, but what do you do for yourself to like kind of walk into the room and like be fully present for the woman going through the birth? Well, I always pray. <clears throat> I mean, that's just a given. Mm-hmm. And I walk into the room very quietly because I don't want to disturb um, the woman's uh, rhythms. Mm -hmm. I want her to just barely notice that I've walked in. Mm -hmm. And here I'm walking in from outside and bringing three or four bags. So I walk in quietly and um, and kind of uh, attune myself to her. You know, what's how she feel. How do the vibrations feel in the room? How, how does it feel between her and her partner? Um, how is the family? How is the house? Uh, like, are things clean and picked up? And it looks like she's got things together and good help, or do things look kind of upset, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I just notice things I observe. I be quiet and observe. And then I'll, um, you know, talk to her and see how things are going. And then we just go on from there. Nice. Sometime in there, I get her blood pressure. I listen to the baby's heartbeat and, you know, talk to whoever else is at the birth, her husband, her mother, her grandmother, Mm -hmm. see how their, what their part is as they see it. So leading up to that birth um, with your clients, I know that there can be a lot of like fear and anxiety leading up to that point. Um, I've like definitely seen and heard women talk about, you know, like I've been pregnant, I've been so focused on the pregnancy and now I have to push this baby out of me and it's like terrifying. Um, How do you kind of help women work through that um, and get to a place of like real confidence and knowing that this is what they were like made to do and and you'll be there assisting them and everything, kind of how how do you help them get to that point? Well, um, we start working on this at the very beginning of pregnancy. Okay. And I start, when when the woman first comes in to me for for her very first visit, I ask her how she perceives birth. How, how how was she born? How What stories have her mothers and her aunties and grandmother told her? And, um, and how does her partner feel about this whole situation? And start kind of feeling out how, how she thinks about birth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we work, we talk about that through the pregnancy every month when she comes in and I'm all always on call for people to call me or email me during the pregnancy anytime mm-hmm. for any, with any fears or uh, concerns they have. And we address those fears and concerns. So hopefully by the time she goes into the delivery, she doesn't have a lot of fears. She feels relaxed about it. She's seen some videos that we let women see. <coughs> Um, she, um, you know, she's doing, she's doing pretty well and she's in a spiritual place. She's in a spiritual place with her partner. I mean, that's best case scenario. And she has confidence. Mm 
Mm-hmm. I want to see a woman who, when by the time she goes into labor, she's confident she can do this. She knows. I also want her to know that it's a very heavy event. It's a heavy spiritual event, and your body is going to be doing things that you've never done before, especially with a first baby. Right. And that it's a natural event, and um, what we as midwives will do for this woman, and we make sure she knows it, is we'll monitor her and the baby through the whole process and make sure that everything's okay. And I want her agreement that if I have something that doesn't look right, I will talk to her about it. And she will listen to what I'm saying. Right. Want to, um, if I want to transport her to a hospital because there's decelerations or something like that, uh, or high blood pressure, that I can, uh, that she'll agree to do that. So yeah, so you you definitely help like throughout the whole process, starting from the very beginning, help women get to this place of confidence. So once the labor arrives, she's hopefully in that in that headspace. Um, and then, kind of, what else do you guys do with the expectant mothers throughout their pregnancy? Like, that's different from let's say working with an OB um, in terms of the frequency of appointments and kind of what you guys do during those checkups. Um, and what else you guys talk about with with her um, leading up to the labor? Yeah. Well, we do, um, we see women once a month until their eighth month, and then we see them every two weeks. And then in their ninth month, ninth month, we see them every week. So that's pretty much the same as hospitals. Okay. We don't require, now here's the difference, we don't require ultrasounds. We don't require a dating ultrasound or a 20-week ultrasound. In fact, I don't even like them at in those early stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, some women are concerned about, um, very concerned. Maybe they lost a baby before. Or they had a, a baby that was uh, had problems, maybe their previous baby had heart problems or something, so they want this checked early on in pregnancy. That's okay if they want an ultrasound then. But we do not routinely do dating ultrasounds or 20-week ultrasounds. Um, We do do ultrasounds for if there's any bleeding before delivery, uh, if the baby looks like there might be two babies, maybe twins, um, or if the baby feels like it's in a bad bad position. Uh, we might do an ultrasound to check check out what's going on. But that those will be late term ultrasounds. Uh, I don't mind an ultrasound around thirty weeks to make sure the heart's good, there's no diaphragmic hernia, there's no problems with the baby. Um, some women decline this and that's fine, but um, Ultrasound is, uh, there's still, I mean, that could be a very long conversation, but there's still, there's there's studies out there that say that ultrasound can do damage to the baby. So um, we don't do a lot of ultrasounds. Okay, so uh, we see women every week. We spend almost an hour or two with them at every visit. Wow. Now, no doctor will do that. Yeah, definitely uh, not. And we talk about how they're doing. I want to know what makes a woman what makes her laugh, what 
makes her cry. I want to feel her and her, her partner and any family that's going to be at the birth or a doula that she might have. have. I want to meet everybody who's going to be at the birth and see how the dynamics are working between the woman and the doula and the family and everything. Um, we talk a lot about diet. Yeah. And uh, that's something that most doctors don't address much at all. Right. Um, so what is kind of the diet? Important. That's, pardon me? I was just going to ask you, what it, or what are kind of those diet conversations like? Like how, what foods do you guys recommend? Or is it kind of person to person? No, it, it's like across the board, I want a woman to eat dark leafy greens, vegetables of all colors, um, whole grains, um, whole sprouted grains are the best. I want her to eat protein, either um, if she's a vegetarian, plenty of uh, soy, uh, beans, uh, other other kind of beans, um, nuts, seeds, a healthy diet. I want her to have a healthy diet. I want her to have her omega-3 oils, her omega-6s, but you need more, you know, you need those omega-3s. That they help build the brain, and I want her to have plenty of drink, plenty of water. Mm-hmm. And so we talk about that. We talk about different recipes, and sometimes we even come over to my house and cook something up and um, let her, you know, so she knows how to do that. And the American diet is very poor um, across the board. I yeah. think people are starting to become more aware of it, but um, it's, you know, fruits and vegetables, especially vegetables, are so very important, especially dark leafy greens, like right. kale. Right. And the other thing I don't want her to do is I don't want her to eat empty calories, especially at night before bed. Uh, empty calories is ice cream, candy, donuts potato chips, <coughs> um, fast foods. I don't want her to do that. Right. Um, and it's, you know, we so we talk about that. I, sometimes I say, pretend that ice cream doesn't exist on the planet. <laughs> and that always brings several good laughs. Yeah. <laughs> because everybody <laughs> likes ice cream. But and once in a while, you know, it's okay, you know. But ice cream is not good for you it's not good for your brain it's not good for your body mm-hmm. um it's not a good food it's not a nutritious food so so i don't like women to eat empty calories i want them to eat calories nutritious calories calories that are good and um then we take the the woman's weight into account if she's a very slender small woman and she tends to be very slender i i know that she's going to be nursing a baby after this baby's born so I want her to put on a little weight so I'll make sure she's getting the foods that will do that if a woman starts out at say 250 pounds I'll talk to her about keeping her getting all her nutrients everything she needs at the same time keeping her weight down and I've had women have great great um success with that and um so we talk a lot about diet. 
we spend a lot of time about that. That's great. Then, then we spend a lot of time about what's the delivery going to be like, especially with first-time moms, prima gravita moms. What what is what can you expect? And uh, we talk a lot about that. Um. So, do you also help them? Like I've heard that, for example, you know I've heard about the Bradley method that they recommend. You know squatting when you're going to sit and like watch TV, let's say, or if like, you know, getting kind of your physical body prepared. Um, do you guys recommend anything like that? Like ways to help them either with fitness and exercise or just with their day to day life, like how, how to be mindful of their, of their body. Uh, the main thing we ask women to do <clears throat> is walk. Walking is great exercise. Um, a woman who does a lot of uh, squatting is good. That's that's good. Mm-hmm. A woman who does a lot of ballet or runs marathons or uh, does yoga. Uh, now, prenatal yoga might be a little different, but somebody who's, say, a yoga instructor will come into our office and say, I know I'm going to have a good birth. I'm, you know, I've been running a marathon twice a year for... 10 years and I'm in really good shape or I'm a yoga teacher or I'm a ballet, uh, ballet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, so they're in good shape. These women are in excellent shape and their pelvises are like all the muscles and the ligaments in their pelvises are nice and tight. And so, and they also stretch very well. So these women actually have harder deliveries. And it's because they keep those that musculature and ligaments very tight because that's what they need to do ballet or do yoga. Now, there are kinds of yoga that will loosen those ligaments and muscles, and that's uh, prenatal yoga. Um, so that's interesting. Those women, I want them to not do anything but walk or maybe swim during their pregnancies because I'd like to loosen up these muscles and ligaments. And uh, we also give them some stretches to do that will help loosen up these muscles and ligaments. Right. And it's just the pelvis, the spinosacral muscle. I mean, we want that to kind of relax a little bit during your pregnancy. We have women, um, we talk about their sex life during uh, appointments, and I want them to be sexually happy with their partners and um of course if they're not that's we talk about that and how we can help with that and um but uh i talked to one woman and her husband was away quite a bit and i said well how are you doing sexually um she said we get along and i said are you you know, when he comes home, are you having some time together to make love? And she says, oh, yes, but I, I know how to fix myself up. <laughs> so, um, but it's really nice if a partner um, and the woman know, you know, get along sexually well. Uh, sex is what gets the babies in there and... Um, you know, orgasm is, 
the, uh, the oxytocin that you get during orgasm keeps growing in pregnancy. And you get more and more and more oxytocin. And then the S, you have higher and higher amounts of estrogen. And estrogen actually works in the, your uterine lining uh, by building more oxytocin receptors in that uterine lining. And so when you're having the baby, you're at the peak of your oxytocin levels. And as you're pushing that baby out, your oxytocin levels are the highest they will ever be in your life. Wow. And um, so that that helps you have the baby. And it, it, you also have endorphins and um, adrenaline, noradrenaline. You have other other pain reliever hormones and other hormones that are activating and helping you. Right. So... I, you know, I kind of talk about this with women so they know that their body is really on their side. Their, right. their natural body is going to help them have this baby if they're healthy and well-fed. Yeah, um, I saw this TEDx talk of Ina May, and she said, we're the only species of mammal who can doubt our ability to give birth. And I thought that was so interesting because I think a lot of that comes from society and kind of what we're raised hearing about it and seeing about it on TV and in movies, um, people's perception of what birth is like. And I just feel like it's totally misdirected, whereas you guys are really helping kind of shift that mentality. I mean, unfortunately, it's kind of more when women walk in and they're pregnant. Um, you know, I would love for, you know, and that's kind of the point of my blog is to help future generations learn from a younger age and be better than the generations before them. But like, especially when it comes to this, is having this idea of, like, birth is totally natural. It's totally what we're built to do as women, and um, and we got this. Like, for the most part, it's it's really – you don't need the OBGYN. I mean, OBGYNs are trained surgeons, you know. They're trained to cut. They're not trained to do these um, drug-free home births that are vaginal. Like, they're not really trained to sit around and wait the same way that midwives are. And so – I, I really think it's important for, you know, the more you know, the, you, the more information you have to make a, de a decision for yourself that works for you, of course. But um, I do think that a lot of that fear and anxiety um, is unfortunately calmed by that hospital setting for, for a lot of women. It's um, they feel more safe and secure being in that hospital setting. But um, I think a lot of the time that could be working against you, you know, with the drugs that they give you uh -huh. that kind of uh -huh. counteract how labor should go, whereas you guys kind of really prepare the woman from the very start, which is really awesome. And I'm, I'm it's just been so interesting to learn more about midwifery um, as a practice. Exactly. And that's important work that you're doing with your blog because <laughs> women, women have babies and it's a natural process and we should have confidence that we can do that. Yeah. In fact, women should have more confidence in general. Women have been knocked down and battered around for centuries and centuries. And we're strong individuals, and we need to know that. And we can have our babies, and we have the energy and the, uh, the hormones. Everything comes together perfectly for us. Now, one of the things that's happening now is that um, there's been television shows, uh, scary 
birth shows. Yeah. And and um, things and everybody has a scary birth tale, and that's not good to t- to you know go to a new pregnant woman and tell her the scariest birth tale that you've heard. People come into our clinic and say, "What do I do about my you know my aunt?" She comes to me every day and tells me a scary birth tale. And I say, don't visit with her while you're pregnant <laughs> if you can do something. I mean, uh, it's not good to hear those stories because those, the whole society is scared. And hospitals and doctors help that with that scariness because they, they're scared. Right. I had a doctor tell me one time that uh, shoulder dystocia was the thing in the world that scared him the most. What is that? Shoulder dystocia. When the shoulders come down and then a shoulder kind of gets stuck on the pubic bone <laughs> and the baby's head will get born, but the, the, the body doesn't come out yeah. like it should right away. And a doctor told me that he was, and this was an OBGYN doctor, that this was the one thing that scared him more than anything in the world. And I think, oh my gosh, I've never been scared of shoulder dystocia. Yeah. We learned how to handle it. It's a, it's an easy fix, and we get the baby out. Right. And um, I didn't even know about shoulder dystocia for the first about nine years I was delivering. Yeah. And then somebody, I mean, I'd had a couple babies that, came out and the head was born and I had to move the mother around and maneuver the baby out. But we did that. Right. And sometimes we get the mother over on our hands and knees. You know, we do different things. But um, I was never scared of it. Right. And here is a doctor scared to death of it. And they're scared. They're scared of a lot of things. And of course, you have to be fair to the OBGYNs. They get the general public. They get a lot of women who smoke cigarettes mm-hmm. and drink and do other drugs and are not healthy in general. They get women who um, are grossly overweight mm-hmm. and have poor lifestyles. Midwives usually get women who are um, aware of how to be healthy. Right. Now, that's not always the case, but during that prenatal period, where you see a woman every month, and you can say, hey, you know, I'd like to see you every two weeks. But during that period, we get to know the women, and we help them out with lifestyle and diet if they have a poor lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And we spend that hour with them, or two, every visit. Doctors aren't, aren't able to do that. And so they they get women who are uh, smokers, drinkers, and, and not... Um, good eaters and yeah they see more problems right so they're faced kind of with different challenges than you guys are faced with right right um well and then what about after the birth so how often do you see the mom and and what's that like we uh pay very close attention to the woman after the birth we see them well we usually stay four to six hours after the birth depending on how everybody's doing and depending on if there's someone there to help the mother we really want them we really want a young couple 
or a woman and her partner to have a third person, either an aunt or a sister or a grandmother or a doula, be with her and help her watch the baby that first few nights. Now, one of the things I've noticed, and this is pretty important, a woman who has a baby is really tired. She, She gets exhausted. Sometimes, not always, but she usually gets exhausted mm-hmm. having a baby. You get pretty tired. And she needs some sleep. She needs, in fact, about four to six hours of sleep sometime in the first 24 hours. If she doesn't get that sleep, she is going to be crabbier. She's going to get depressed. And if she's going to, as she goes along in the next three or four days, and she becomes sleep deprived, that um, may lead her into uh, postpartum depression, which is a very serious issue. Mm-hmm. So, so sleep can counteract that, that. Sleep, like the baby will probably get to a place where it sleeps for about four hours. Okay. And to get to that place where the baby where that mother can sleep, somebody has to watch the baby so the mother can completely go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And she knows, like, grandma's going to watch the baby or the doula's going to watch the baby and make sure everything's okay with that baby so she can go to sleep. Right. And that's really, really important. That's one thing that the hospitals offer is that after you have a baby, if you want, the hospital will watch the baby, you know, the nursery, while you get that four hours sleep. And most women want their baby in the room with them, which is totally fine. But somebody has to be in the room and watch that baby. Right. And because babies can, you know, cough up some spit and everything in the first um, uh, 24 hours. Babies are in a transition period during that time. And there's a few things that, I mean, usually everything goes perfect, but there's a few things a baby can um, run into. Like most, Mostly it has to do with mucus, and the baby will swallow some mucus and, um, and then try to spit it up um, at some point, and somebody has to be, you know, awake and alert to help that baby get that mucus out. Right. So the first... 24 hours, we make sure there's somebody watching the baby. In the next four or five days, we check the baby every day. We check the mother every day. We make sure mom's getting enough sleep. Again, that's so important. We make sure the baby's getting enough breast milk. Again, so important. And then we check the woman again at one week, and then at 10 days, and then at six weeks. Oh, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense um, to have that third person there. Um, so and the- in this country, there's not enough postpartum help. Like the doctors will send women home from the hospital, and um, there will nobody will be watching the woman. They'll go home after 24, 36 hours, and the woman will go home, and her husband will have to go back to work. This is a very bad situation. Because the mom's going to get tired. She's going to be alone. Who's going to be checking in on her? Right. And this is where postpartum doulas are so very important. Right. 
Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense that like the sleep yeah. deprivation in that first 24 hours can, can yeah. mean a lot. One, um, one thing, one of my midwives who delivered one of my babies told me after I had the baby, she said they did some studies back in the sixties where women who stayed in bed with their babies for 10 days and just was in their bedroom just taking care of their baby. Somebody was feeding them. Somebody was taking care of their house, their other kids, and and making sure that they had everything they needed. And so the woman and the baby stayed in bed or, you know, in the rocking chair for 10 days. Those women and those babies have less visits to the doctor in the first four years of oh, that wow. baby's life. Yeah, it's so funny. I joke about that with my friends and family when I say, you know, when I give birth, my job is going to be to take care of that baby and all of your jobs is going to be to take care of me. (laughs) Absolutely. That is so wise. Yeah. Make sure your blog gets that information out. Okay. Because it's really important. Yeah. And this will help you not get depressed. It will, you know. The Amish just do this. It's part of their custom. Right. Is the woman stays in bed for the first 10 days, and a sister, an aunt, a grandma will come in and take care of her household. Right. Yeah, no, it makes it makes total sense. Um, right. So how do you kind of, before we into, like wrap this up, I just wanted to ask you how you envision midwifery um, kind of in the future? Like, do you think it's going to grow in popularity? Do you think more women are going to start turning to it? What have you seen just on your experience, you know, for the past, however many years since the seventies, um, seen those changes evolve and what you think the future holds for midwifery? Well, I've seen Miss midwifery grow. <clears throat> I've seen it grow and grow and grow. And now there's a certification and there's licensure and more states, more states, states are certified Mm -hmm. more and more women want to become midwives there's more colleges who are teaching home birth midwifery and um, we have a college here college of traditional midwifery there's the utah school of midwifery Uh, there's different college midwifery colleges around the uh, country that teach you to be home birth midwives um i think we're i think it's going to grow um The good thing about that is when a woman has a midwife, has a home birth midwife, we're stressing health, we're stressing nutrition, uh, we're we're stressing good good uh, habits, right? Good life habits, and so these women get a better. Even if they start out maybe drinking cokes and and eating hamburgers and smoking cigarettes, you know, (laughs) worst case scenario. Yeah. They're, they're, they're going to get an education during this pregnancy from a home birth, home birth midwife that helps her have a better lifestyle, that will give her some handles on that lifestyle. They're going to be exercising more. They're, and then they'll notice that they're enjoying life more right. during that pregnancy. And hopefully that will carry over to the children and yeah. the babies and the children and to their families. And so I think midwifery is here to stay. Yeah, for sure. I mean, all the European countries have midwives. And, um, you know, there's, of course, there's a lot of stories where, oh, they closed our birthing center, you know, they're making it hard on midwives, which, you know, 
know, in some places happens, but we have to keep the faith. I've seen it over 50 years. I've seen it grow and grow and grow. And I've seen more and more people want midwives, want home births, want safe births, want to be healthy. Women want to be healthy. Women want that spiritual experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, birth is a spiritual experience. And uh, women want that. They want to feel that that extra, really magic stuff that happens when a baby's born. And they want their babies to feel that. And um, that's all around prayer and meditation and your beliefs, whatever they are. But, um, you know, women, women want to feel healthy both spiritually and physically. Right, yeah. And I think that's what home birth offers. Yeah, that support for sure. I mean, you guys, it's amazing that you guys spend one to two hours with each appointment. I mean, that yeah. has been something I've been talking a lot about is how doctors, and I get that they just don't have the time. There's no world where a doctor the could. The insurance companies, yeah, the insurance companies won't allow them spend that long right yeah so that's a huge I feel like benefit to midwifery right. just that alone is like so much information and guidance and support that like we don't get in hospitals so right. that was really interesting to hear um right well thank you so much so just the three final questions that I ask everybody um the first one is what mantra or words do you like to live by what mantra or words that what that do you like to live by? That I like to live by? Mm-hmm. Um, mantra or words that I like to live by? Hmm, yes, I did read that in your questions. Um, <laughs> I want to be positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, I want to have a good time with my family. Mm-hmm. Um, I, 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 being positive and loving people and getting along with people and... You know, I, will, I want the spiritual, um, I mean, I'm looking out at the woods right now that are so green and so lush, and there's a kind of magic in there, and um, I'm so grateful. I guess that's my mantra. I'm mm-hmm. just so grateful. That's amazing. That's beautiful. Um the second question is, we all know it takes a village to raise kids, as the saying goes. Uh, what uh-huh. did you most value in the farm community who helped you raise your kids? Well, I valued um, the dedication that we had to raising sane, healthy kids. Right. And um, I value my friends who helped me. And I helped them. I mean, we nursed each other's babies. We babysat for each other. Um, My kids uh, grew up in the country and uh, they might be gone for a while, but I knew they were out running around in the woods. Uh I knew they weren't out on the streets and that was very valuable. And I always kept a pot of beans and some tortillas around so my kids and their friends would end up here and eat. And they'd eat good food, nutritious food. Yeah, so that's that awesome. Good. I also value that we <clears throat> got to um, raise our kids with a garden. And our kids helped in the garden. But the most important thing that they saw was that we grew food and ate out of the garden. Uh-huh. Even if when they were teenagers, they, they wanted to go run through the woods with their friends or something rather than work in the garden, Yeah, which there was some of both of that. 
they saw us grow food and eat the food, and that's what sustained our family. And that's, that's valuable beyond belief. Yeah, definitely. That's awesome education. I think it's it just I think from the very beginning it sets them up with this great foundation of understanding food in a different way too because we're so disconnected from our food sources now like if we live right. in a city and and don't grow our own food you know, like I grew up going to the grocery store with my mom. It never occurred to me not even once to ask where that food was coming from. And so that's really, that's just like so different. And I hope to provide a different experience for my kids and and have a garden to some extent, um, as much as I can living in Los Angeles. But, um, yeah, that's really important to teach kids from a young age. And you can start out with a six, six or three foot by three foot square box. Yeah. On your deck and grow a few kale in there, you know? Yeah, definitely. You actually, with a box, it's three by three, um, and with some good dirt in it, you could get quite a bit of kale. That's great. With yeah, the sunshine you have. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I know for sure. Um, and then, lastly, what qualities do you most admire? You kind of touched on this, but um, and worked to instill in your children and the children from the caravan and on the farm. Um, what kind of what re- qualities do I want to instill in them? Or did you? Because, yeah, I mean, like, what uh, as a community? Be self-sufficient. Mm-hmm. Be, you know, don't be afraid of work. Mm-hmm. Um, be honest with everybody around you. Yeah. Uh, love everybody around you. Um, don't fight. Don't fight, boys. <laughs> I mean, I had six boys, so right. like get along. <laughs> wow, a whole um, house of boys. Uh, I had one girl. Oh. Um, and to my girl, don't screech. <laughs> <laughs> boys, boys are rough and tumble. Girls screech. I mean, uh, but uh, just get along. Have you know? Have fun, but take care of business and and work hard. Be honest. Yeah. Uh, those and are all really meditate good. or pray. I want them to feel the spiritual in life too. Mm-hmm. And I think they do. That's all my good. kids are hard workers. That's good. Um, well, thank you so much, Pamela. This was such a treat. It was so awesome to talk to you and hear about your experience and midwifery and the farm and the caravan. I mean, all of this, I'm just so fascinated by it. I think it's such an amazing movement that you guys started. Um, and the fact that you're teaching more women today. I'm assuming it's a majority of women, how to be midwives um, and what it takes and kind of advancing that skill and passing it on. It's so important. It's such great work. And I'm just so thankful that you guys started it all. And, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. You're welcome.